All right, so uh, we're going to talk about neurochemical imaging. Um, I have a disclosure slide. I have consulted for Pfizer, and actually some of the stuff that I'm going to talk to you about today are uh, results from a drug trial with Pfizer using brain neuroimaging as uh, a marker for an outcome. So I did receive grant support from them, and I also consult. So the learning objectives for... Welcome. The learning objectives are basically to understand a little bit about chemical neuroimaging, uh, explore a little bit of uh, the, the results that say that molecular, there's molecular evidence for a neurotransmitter imbalance, central neurotransmitter imbalance in the brain in some chronic pain patients. And hopefully, at the end, I'm going to present some data that will hopefully address this question, which is, are the neurochemical imbalances that we see in these patients a result of having chronic pain, or are they actually causing the chronic pain itself? And that's a really big question that the field has yet to uh, address, and we're going to try to address that a little bit with some of the data that we're going to present today. So, um, wow, I think my overview got caught into two slides here, but neurochemical in imaging, basically we're going to be looking at excitability and inhibition with two different neurotransmitters, glutamate, or glutamate plus glutamine is GLX, but I'll refer to it basically as glutamate, and then GABA as another neurotransmitter. And we're going to be looking at pharmacological treatments, and we're going to see if personalized analgesia might be possible for acupuncture uh, with, with uh, using neuroimaging. So you can't really see it very well on this slide, but up here, this is a neuron, and this is the hope that we're trying to understand. We're trying to understand what these neurons are doing in the central nervous system, and we have various ways of assessing neural activity. So you've probably all heard of EEGs or uh, magnetoencephalography, MEGs, and they basically capture electrical activity in the, in the form of these waveforms, like the signal over time. Um, so they have very good uh, temporal resolution. You can acquire activity on the millisecond kind of scale, but they have a very crude uh, spatial resolution. You're not really sure where in the brain that electrical activity is coming from. So that's why we have other, inner, other uh, outcomes. There's functional magnetic resonance imaging, which you may have heard before. And unlike electrical activity, which stimulates the EEG uh, assessment, um, fMRI works on a change in blood flow. So when a certain area of the brain is activated, when the neurons are firing, the brain sends more blood into that area. And because the blood is highly oxygenated um, to give the neurons their uh, uh, energy, uh, that actually changes the mag magnetic properties in that tissue, and that can be read from a large magnet here. Um, so that's fMRI. And actually, what we're going to talk about today is the different types of neurotransmitter uh, imaging, imaging modalities, which um, one of the nice things about neurotransmitter and uh, receptor activity is basically it gives you a handle on what molecularly is going on. With EEG and also with fMRI, you have no idea what neurotransmitters uh, are being involved in this fMRI response, but in uh, spectroscopy and in positron emission tomography, you can get a handle on the molecular uh, action of what's going on. So a lot of you, I'm sure you all know that there's different mechanisms for pain, and typically we think of pain as occurring as a stimulus that acts in the periphery and then is sent into the central nervous system and then up to uh, the brain where pain is experienced. But what we're coming to learn more and more recently is that there's some chronic pain conditions where um, the central activations in the brain, where the brain itself might actually be causing some of the pathology, and it's actually not a problem with the, the periphery. 
Um, the periphery has actually no, some patients have no, no issues at all in the periphery, but they have profound pain, and when we think that it might actually be coming from the central nervous system and specifically the brain. So fibromyalgia, you've probably heard of the condition fibromyalgia. It's uh, one of the canonical central pain conditions. And the 1990 uh, F American College of Rheumatology criteria were that a person had to have chronic widespread pain in all four quadrants of the body, but they also had to have tenderness at specific points on the body. And one of the problems with this diagnosis was that it suggests that it's a discrete illness and that there's only specific areas of the body where there might be pain, like focal areas. And um, also, with this, there, there's, there's a lot of psychological and behavioral factors that also might, might be at play. What we're now finding is that fibromyalgia is a global widespread condition, obviously, with, which, which is the result of a final common pathway of centralization of, their, of pain. And it's part of a larger continuum, um, such that uh, if you can think of chronic pain patients, all of, all of chronic pain patients being this iceberg, so fibromyalgia are basically the tip of the iceberg where the centralization is very, very prominent. Um, but we now think that a lot of conditions like knee osteoarthritis, low back pain, um, temporal mandibular disorder, even in irritable bowel syndrome might be conditions that have uh, some sub- uh, threshold centralization going on. So if you're not familiar with functional neuroimaging, there's different areas of the brain that are involved in different things. So you can basically divide areas in the brain that are either pronociceptive, meaning that when those areas are activated, you have more pain, or there might be, uh, or there are antinociceptive regions where you find that when these areas are activated, you actually have less pain. And so that's why we, we think of these as either being pro- or antinociceptive regions. And some of these regions you might be familiar with. Uh, obviously, the somatosensory cortex right here, you obviously would think that the somatosensory cortex might be involved in, in pain. Um, also, the thalamus, uh, also the cingulate here. Uh, some of the very strong antinociceptive areas that you might have heard of are the, like the paraaqueductal gray here. There's a lot of animal studies showing that stimulation of the PAG inhibits pain. You can also see this in humans um, as well. And then there's the perigenual cingulate here, which is also inhibitory. But the area that we're going to focus on primarily today in this talk is the insula, which is basically this area here. It's bilateral. And uh, this is the left insula, and this is the right insula. And that's where we're going to focus on basically most of our uh, exploration today. Our group was one of the first groups to show that fibromyalgia patients actually have increased brain activity in response to a painful stimulus. And specifically, we showed that the insula, so this is, this is the insula here, so there was an activation in the insula where fibromyalgia patients showed more of a bold response or more of an fMRI signal. And this was replicated somewhat by Dane Cook um, in 2004, also showing that the insula here is more activated in fibromyalgia patients in response to a thermal stimulus. So we had a pressure stimulus, pressure squeezing the thumb in our study, and Dane had a, more of a, therm a thermal probe, which was hot, and that was placed on the skin. So the fibromyalgia patients have an insula that seems to be hyperactive. Well, one of the reasons it might be hyperactive is that it might have too much of an excitatory neurotransmitter going on there. And what's the major neuro excitatory neurotransmitter in the brain? 
and in the nervous system, and it's glutamate. Glutamate is the major neurotransmitter that's uh, used to excite neurons. 90% of them, actually, in the brain are, are excited by uh, glutamate. And the action of glutamate, uh, it acts on these receptors, a, a number of different types of receptors. This is, a, um, this is an AMPA receptor. And what happens is the glutamate binds uh, in, the, in the extracellular domain, and then that opens up a permeation pathway through the plasma membrane that causes depolarization, causes the cell to be activated. And so there's these AMPA channels, and there's also NMDA channels, which are very important for synaptic plasticity. There's a lot of animal research that shows that uh, modulation of these receptors in animals plays a, plays a significant role in learning and memory, and a lot of us feel that synaptic plasticity might be one of the ways why certain individuals might develop chronic pain that lasts. So, um, In fibromyalgia patients, there's been a number of studies showing alterations in neurotransmitter levels, and this one just shown in 2007 shows that fibromyalgia patients have increased levels of glutamate actually in the cerebral spinal fluid. So they're probably getting uh, overall more activation in the brain. And what we'd really like to know is this right here, which we actually can't actually observe, but we'd like to see that fibromyalgia patients might actually have more of the glutamate here in the synaptic cleft, and that's why the tissue is hyperactive. It's getting activated by the glutamate. So you can't actually assess that in humans, obviously because you would be doing something that's very invasive, but you can use this neurochemical technique called proton magnetic spect resonance uh, spectroscopy, which I spoke to at the beginning. So this technique uses the same magnet as fMRI. So you can have a patient and you can give them an fMRI experiment and in, at the same time you can give them a spectroscopy experiment to see uh, what, the, what the neurotransmitter concentrations are. And so what, we're not going to get into physics, but basically this um, a radio frequency pulse is applied to the protons and they change their magnetic properties. And depending on where the protons are located in the molecules, it'll change that particular molecule's um, signal in, in terms of the uh, response. And here we can see uh, two spectra. This is a spectra that lets you look at the glutamate, which is this peak, and the GABA, which is this peak. Um, these are some of the voxels that you would use. So you'd, place your, you'd ask the scanner to look specifically in this area of the brain. Just give me information about glutamate or GABA in that area. And um, this is a, a scan that can give you glutamate. Here's a peak here. And what's really nice about this is you can get a signal from an individual patient. You can get the concentration of a single individual's uh, glutamate, unlike fMRI where you have to average over many, many trials. So it's really nice that you can get a signal that's reliable and also robust enough to be detected from a single individual. Yeah. Yeah, so what we've done here is, uh, I don't know if you can see it, but this box here, that's the area where we've targeted for the insula. Um, and so this, this, this spectra here and this spectra here come from a single box. And this is, a, this is basically the kind of resolution you're getting at. It's usually about a centimeter on a side of a, of a box is about the resolution that we have with current spectroscopy techniques. There's newer techniques that are getting much more finer resolution, and I expect in the future we'll be uh, seeing better studies that are, have more spatial resolution. But yeah, these, these spectra are coming from these individual boxes. Um, okay, so we were the first group to show this. We found that fibromyalgia patients actually had 
more glutamate in their posterior insula. So if we, we plotted the glutamate level here on the y-axis, here we have a group of healthy controls. You see this nice spread. Um, some, health, some healthy controls have higher levels of glutamate than others. And here's the fibromyalgia patients in the black circles. Each dot is a patient. And you can see that basically all the patients are above the mean of the healthy controls. Um, we did not see this effect in the anterior insula. We only saw it in the posterior. So that meant there was some specificity to this. It wasn't a global overall increase in glutamate everywhere. It was specifically located the posterior insula. And moreover, what we looked at when we plotted the glutamate concentration here on the x-axis and then we plotted their response to a painful stimulus, we found that the individuals that had higher levels of the glutamate were more sensitive. There were lower thresholds to a painful stimulus, so they were, they were more sensitive. So this inverse relationship. So that's showing that the glutamate concentration itself is playing a role in the magnitude of the sensitivity of, an, of a person to an, exper uh, to an experimental pain condition. Then other groups went on to sort of replicate this. Um, there's been three other studies uh, that have come out in 2010 and 2011. There may be some more that I'm not quite aware of yet, but all of these showed an increase in glutamate, or GLX, in the fibromyalgia patients. Now, these studies weren't in the insula, actually. So uh, one of the studies found the amygdala, which is another area involved in emotional uh, processing. It's also involved in, in pain to some extent. So the amygdala had more glutamate in the fibromyalgia patients. They saw no change in the thalamus. There's another group that saw the posterior cingulate, um, which is this one. And the posterior cingulate is really involved in the default mode network, which we'll get into in a little bit if you've never heard of what the default mode network is. It's, uh, it's really kind of interesting, and lately we found that it's playing a big role in pain. Um, and then this group saw the ventrolateral prefrontal cortex. But everyone was seeing increases. No one was seeing decreases in fibromyalgia. Now, this, this has been also replicated in other pain conditions. So in acute dental pain, people have shown that there's been an increase in glutamate, in, uh, in specifically in uh, the insula of dental, dental pain patients. In IBS patients, they actually had reductions in hippocampal glutamate. And the hippocampus is more of a region that's involved in pain inhibition. So if you have less glutamate in that area, that would be uh, bad. You'd have less inhibition of your pain. And um, then this, this low back pain study found uh, reduced uh, glutamate in the anterior cingulate, and the anterior cingulate also is another antinociceptive area. So when the anterior cingulate is activated, you tend to have less pain. So if you have less glutamate there, you have less inhibition of your pain. So overall, this suggests that the elevations, are, you see elevations as well as decreases uh, of glutamate in certain areas of the brain which are focal. They're not everywhere. Um, so, example, we didn't see it in the anterior insula. It doesn't seem to be present in the thalamus. Now, what, what, what are the mechanisms? Like, what actually could be going on molecularly? Why, why do we see these elevations? Well, there could be more neurotransmitter in the synaptic vesicle. Obviously, if there's more neurotransmitter in the synapse that's released, you're going to have more of an activation in the cell. So that could be going on. You could have less reuptake. You know, when the synaptic cleft is filled up with glutamate, that glutamate is quickly... Uh, swallowed back up by the neurons so that the signal is turned off quickly. So there might actually be less reuptake, so there might be uh, an increase in glutamate extracellularly. Um, there may be more synapses in the patients, and there might be some um, changes in synaptic plasticity over time, 
where the chronic pain patients might have a different uh, synaptic plasticity effect than in, in pain-free individuals. Now, glutamate is also involved in the citric acid cycle here. So um, what happens is when glutamate's released by a neuron, uh, it binds to the postsynaptic cell here and activates the receptors, but it's quickly uh, mopped by the astrocytes. And uh, some of that glutamate is turned back into glutamine and then back into glutamate and recycled. But some of it is also used for energy in the citric acid cycle. So our assessment of glutamate is a mixture of both this metabolic glutamate as well as this neurotransmitter glutamate. But I would stress that the concentration in the neurotransmitters is much, much higher. Uh, concentration in the vesicle is very high, 100 millimolar, whereas in the um, acidic acid cycle, it's much less, like 2 millimolar. So the concentration is sort of biased more towards us seeing this, but there's some metabolic activity that's probably coming along with the signal as well. And unfortunately, we can't distinguish these two in humans, but you can do, uh, do somewhat in animals as well. Okay, now we're going to switch to um, how do these uh, neurotransmitter metabolites affect function. And we're specifically going to be looking at um, connectivity. And it's interesting that there, we found that there's this uh, resting brain network. We find resting brain networks. So when you're actually not really engaged in your environment, uh, your brain has a pattern of network activity that's uh, very, very constant um, within the network, and it's also um, very intrinsic, okay? And it's actually only a part of your evoked uh, response is due to um, the fMRI signal that's due to an evoked stimulus. There's a lot of energy that the brain uses to create these intrinsic networks that are functioning, in the, uh, functioning. And we're just now learning about how these networks work in pain uh, and in other conditions. Yeah? We'll get to that. Uh, uh. Sure. Sorry. Yeah, you're actually going to see some data in a little bit where we actually, so I, my, my disclosure slide said Pfizer. So we looked at pregabalin uh, in a study, and we'll get to that in a second. So pregabalin is a drug that Pfizer um, has used. So we'll get to that in a second. Um, so this intrinsic activity is, uh, sets up these networks, and what you can find is that if you look at the resting activity in different areas of the brain, we find that these areas are synchronously activated. So the fMRI signal here plotted over time is highly correlated between the posterior cingulate here and the medial prefrontal cortex here. There's a, and you can see that the fMRI signal almost completely overlaps. They're very far apart spatially. But functionally, they're very tight. Functionally, they're very, very tightly regula regulated. This network here happens to be the default mode network. And this network is turned on when you're not engaged in your external environment. Basically, when you're self-referentially thinking about, you know, what you're going to do today, you know, what are you going to do tomorrow, what am I going to have for dinner. Um, you're not really engaged. You're sort of like spaced out to some extent. So this network is highly active during that time. 
what we found, what, which was quite interesting, and I, um, I'd have to, I want to um, make a shout out to Vitaly Napadal because he collaborated with me on this project. What we found was that the default mode network here um, was connected more to the insula, actually, in fibromyalgia patients than in healthy controls. And you can see here, this is uh, fibromyalgia connectivity here. This is healthy controls, more connected to the insula, more connected to the insula. Uh, this happens to be the somatosensory cortex, more connected there too. But also what was really remarkable was we asked the patients what their clinical pain was right before we scanned them. We said, you know, how much is your pain on a 0 to 10 scale? We found that that pain rating was very tightly correlated with the connectivity. The more this network was connected to the insula, the more clinical pain they had. So we think that this might be a nice marker to look for uh, a, chronic, uh, pain, a chronic pain marker, like we'd want to see that. Is this only in fibromyalgia patients? No, it's not. Um, we've done a study which just came out this year in uh, the Journal of Pain where we looked actually at pelvic pain patients. And what we were interested in here was looking to see if pelvic pain patients with endometriosis or without endometriosis had alterations in their insula glutamate. And what we found was that the, the pelvic pain patients that had um, that had endometriosis with pain had a higher level of glutamate. Now, this was in the anterior insula, but they had a higher level than the healthy controls. The patients that had endometriosis without pain had very similar levels to the healthy controls. So it seems like the endometriosis wasn't really driving the pain, uh, driving the glutamate. It was the pain that was driving it. Uh, this group here was just uh, chronic pain patients, uh, chronic pelvic pain patients without endometriosis, and they show, also show the higher level of glutamate. So is this related to the connectivity? Well, we found that the pelvic pain patients with, uh, pelvic pain patients had a higher level of connectivity between um, the anterior insula, this region that had the higher level of glutamate, this exact same area, and the default mode network. This is the medial prefrontal cortex, which is part of the default mode network again. So again, we're seeing the insula being more connected to this default mode network in chronic pain patients, in, the, in pelvic pain, a different condition. And it's also significantly correlated with the glutamate. The people that had more glutamate out here had more connectivity to um, this, this medial prefrontal cortex or the default mode. So the actual neurotransmitter level in the insula was related to the functional activity of that area when its connections with another network. Okay, so that's glutamate. We can also look at GABA. GABA is an inhibitory neurotransmitter. And I showed you some, um, some graphs. This is, this is a spectra that you would specifically see with a GABA experiment. Here's the signal. And you can see the signal is greater than the noise. You can definitely see it in individual people. And what's nice about the GABA is that it's, it's really a neurotransmitter. So it's not used for anything else, unlike glutamate, which is used for uh, metabolism, like I was saying. So with GABA, you can be definitely sure that that neurotransmitter is being, playing a role in neural activity, not just in metabolism. So what we were interested in, um, so this is just a slide on GABA. So it, it binds to channels, just like glutamate binds to channels. 
However, what happens with GABA is that when it opens a channel, it causes a shunt in the plasma membrane and causes an inhibition or a hyperpolarization, uh, hyperpolarization of the, the cell membrane. It also binds to metabotropic receptors, which uh, signal through G proteins as well. Um, but in general, GABA is an inhibitory agent. So again, one of our hypotheses would be, wow, if we could measure GABA here in the synapse, would that GABA level be any different in the fibromyalgia patients? We hypothesize that in the insula we might find a difference. We would, you would hypothesize that you would have actually less GABA. You would have less inhibition. And that's, actually, that's exactly what we found. So here's our healthy controls. Here's the GABA level on the y-axis. And then here's our um, fibromyalgia patients. This is the anterior insula now, not the posterior insula. But it's the insula. And we're seeing a decrease in GABA. Um, we didn't see it in the posterior insula. The occipital cortex, we saw not really much of a change. But here we see somewhat of a change, but it didn't quite reach statistical significance. Interestingly, this area, instead of being pro-nociceptive, it's anti-nociceptive. <laughs> so actually, inhibiting this area would be worse for the pain patient. It would actually cause more pain. And so we, we actually have um, more inhibition in the patient's. So if you look at this, the, the patients and you look at their GABA level in the anterior insula and plot it here, unlike with glutamate, when we saw a negative correlation, here we see a positive correlation. Here, the individuals that have higher levels of GABA have higher pain thresholds. So again, this is relating the amount of the neurotransmitter with the subjective response uh, in, to, a, to a painful stimulus. Interestingly, there's some drugs that work on GABA. And there's been a number of studies that have looked at uh, this compound called gamma-hydroxybutyrate, which is a metabolite of GABA. Um, and what, basically what they found is that when you give fibromyalgia patients gamma-hydroxybutyrate, you see a nice decay in their clinical pain. So it's a very strong uh, inhibition of their clinical pain. And this is the placebo right here. So very clear separation. This would have been a blockbuster drug, by the way. Um, however people die with this. Um, they get too sedated almost. And um, that was one of the problems with this drug. But anyway, it suggests that you know, modulating GABA could be a way to um, inhibit, inhibit pain. So to your question, um, can we use uh, spectroscopy in a drug study? Can we actually use this technique to look at how a drug might be acting? Turns out that both GABA and glutamate, if you don't actually do a drug, uh, they have a fairly strong um, consistency, about a coefficient variation of about a 6 to 7%. So it's fairly, uh, fairly um, stable signal, which is what you need. And you need a signal change of about a 6% or a 12% for GABA, a 6% for glutamate. So if you're going to apply a drug to someone, you're going to be able to see a change in glutamate that's about 6%, that is, as long as it's higher than 6%. For GABA, you'd have to see a change that's greater than 12% for your compound. Sorry. Hmm. Interesting. I think it's a liquid, though. The, the clinical trials that they've done that I've been aware of, they use it as a liquid. So I don't know how the supplement, I don't know if the supplement's a solid or a liquid or a tablet. tablet. Yes, 
Yes. Yeah. They have to take it at night, right? Yeah. 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 One one of the things I heard was that you have to dose the second time at night, and so what the people were doing was they were so tired when they were taking the next dose they would overdose. Like they wouldn't measure the right amount. They would be like, uh, you know, not not sure like what they should take. Because you're kind of groggy, and so they they had some adverse events with that. Yeah. It depends on the receptor. So baclofen, I'm not positive, but I'm pretty sure it works on a different receptor than the gamma-hydroxybutyrate, I believe. Or maybe it has a different action. GABA-B, yeah. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, and, and you weren't looking at pain patients, right, either. So it might be... But, you know, I actually did. But I, I don't rule as much with the morphine pump. Yeah. But actually with... Uh, it's the same pump. I just don't give it at five. But, but there are physicians who do interpret the pump, and they will put um, back in the pain. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I think it is somewhat analgesic, but it's not quite as strong as this. I think the this was really remarkable when the clinical trials came out, especially in fibromyalgia. This is unheard of. Like all the other drugs for fibromyalgia don't nearly work quite as well as this. I mean, it would have been a game changer, but it, it wasn't, unfortunately, because of this adverse events. But yeah. Um, okay, so can you use the spectroscopy to look at... Drug effects. Well, I I'm sorry, this slide you can't see very well, but basically this was uh, an animal study where they took rats and they gave them different levels of drugs. And this one that we're going to talk about just really briefly is uh, Vigabatrin. Yes, Vigabatrin. And what it does is it inhibits the breakdown of GABA. So if you have a lot of Vigabatrin around, your GABA level should go up, right? So what they did was they had rats, and they either gave them a vehicle, or they gave them 30 milligrams per kg, 100 milligrams per kilogram, or 300 milligrams per kilogram. You can kind of see the GABA signal increasing here if you've looked at enough of these. But here you can actually see the, the concentrations. What they did was they, um, these are the, the three different doses. You can see that there's an increase in 
uh, GABA concentration not only in the striatum but also in the prefrontal cortex, whereas glutamate uh, stayed fairly constant. A slight change there, but fairly much this vigabatrin was really acting mostly on GABA and not glutamate. So that suggests that with spectroscopy, you might be able to pull out uh, an action of a drug. What they also did, which was really surprising, was they actually sacrificed the animals afterwards and then biochemically calculated the concentration of the GABA in the brains. So not only did they have the proton spectroscopy assessment of the live animals, assessed their uh, their GABA levels, they also assessed the GABA and glutamate levels uh, pharmacologically um, with with, uh, basic science techniques, and what they found was that there was a consistent signal. There, there's, there was a very consistent signal across the doses that was just offset by 1.2 or 1.3 fold. So what it looked like was basically they had uh, higher levels of GABA um, calculated in the liquid chromatography, but with the spectroscopy, it was slightly less. But like this change over the doses of the drug were very similar. So it was basically just like an offset of a bit, but the drug response was nicely mirrored by that. Okay, so what about pregabalin? So this is a drug that's um, used in fibromyalgia. It was the first drug to be approved by the FDA for fibromyalgia. And um, its, its preclinical mechanism of action was thought to inhibit glutamate. It binds to the alpha-2 delta subunit of calcium channels, and when it binds there, it actually inhibits the release of the glutamate into the synapse uh, in, in animal preparations. You can't do that in humans, obviously, but you can assess the glutamate uh, with spectroscopy. And so what we wanted to do was we um, wanted to see if glutamate would actually be changed with this drug pregabalin. And so we, got a, we had a grant that was from Pfizer, and we ended up uh, randomizing 17 fibromyalgia patients into a two-period crossover design. So what happened was we uh, enrolled patients. They were randomized. Half of them got pregabalin first for uh, a two-week period. Then they got washed out, taper and washed out, and then they got placebo. The other half got placebo first, taper, wash out, and then pregabalin. And then before and after each period, we did spectroscopy where we could assess the level of glutamate. And what we found was that the, during the pregabalin period, no matter whether you got pregabalin first or second, we actually did see a decrease, a statistically significant decrease in the glutamate levels. Um, in the, and this is in the posterior insula, the exact same area where fibromyalgia patients have elevations. Um, and this is, this is what happened with the, the same patients when they were taking placebo, um, kind of an outlier here, but basically you can see there's not really the same thing going on uh, in the placebo arm. So we were really, really excited about this. We also didn't see any effect in the anterior insula either for, for pregabalin, so it was specific to the posterior insula. Moreover, uh, one of the analyses we did, which we didn't ha- a priori think of, but which we did anyway after the fact, if you plot the pregabalin concentration on the x-axis before, I'm sorry, if you um, calculate the um, glutamate concentration on the x-axis here, so this is glutamate, so going this way means more glutamate, at baseline before they've taken the drug, and then you plot their change in pain, 
you find that the patients that have higher levels of glutamate in the posterior insula before they take the drug get the greater decreases in their pain. So you can almost predict who's going to be a good responder with this technique. And so that was something that wasn't really ex- we didn't really expect but came out of the data, and it was fairly robust, and I, um, I kind of liked it. So this has some implications for therapies. So in the future, maybe we might be able to do some kind of personalized analgesia where you can have a patient who comes in, and you can give them a scan and say, wow, your glutamate seems to be kind of high, higher than normal uh, for pain-free people, and uh, you might then be a good candidate for this drug. So we would, instead of doing these uh, trial and error things and wasting a lot of time, you might be able to funnel the correct patient into the correct therapy. There's also a lot of fibromyalgia patients who, did, who don't benefit from pregabalin. They have normal levels of glutamate, probably. So those would be the ones you wouldn't want to waste their time. The other thing that this might be important for is drug development. So... Let's say you're a drug company and you've got a compound and you think that compound is working on glutamate in some way, either on metabotropic or ionotropic receptors. Would you want to enroll people in your study that had normal levels of glutamate? Probably not, right? You would only want to enroll people in your study that were likely to benefit from your drug. So this might be a way of you know, basically uh, improving our drug development or identifying new compounds. So also in this pregabalin study, uh, we looked at connectivity. Remember, we were looking at um, how the default mode network was connected to the insula. If you can remember, when it was more connected to the insula, patients had more pain. So what we did was we used this, uh, spec- this voxel, or this region right here in the posterior insula, and we asked what areas are more connected to this region um, before and after pregabalin. And what we found was a very nice, strong correlation here between the change in um, connectivity between the insula, the posterior insula, and the inferior parietal lobule, which is part of the default mode network. This connectivity, when uh, it's decreased, so going down, the clinical pain also goes down. And again, this is in a nice, uh, a nice correlation. So again, suggesting that this is a marker that's picking up not just uh, baseline activity, it's also picking up changes with the drug. And then here on the bottom, what, what we did was we plotted the, the amount of connectivity between the insula and the posterior cingulate versus, uh, at baseline before the drug versus their change in clinical pain. And just like what we found with glutamate, remember the patients that had higher levels of glutamate had the greater improvements in clinical pain. Here we find that the individuals that had the higher levels of connectivity, more stronger connections between the insula and the default mode, those are the ones that benefit most from the compound, from the pregabalin. And we didn't see this with placebo. So this was more specific uh, to the drug action. Yeah. Um, We had to titrate them up. So actually, interestingly, when we started our first try at this, we ended up starting off patients at 600 um, milligrams. And that tended to be too high of a dose. And we actually had a lot of adverse events. And so we had to terminate the study. And then we redid it with a dose escalation. And we started off at 50 
and then worked up to, I think, 100, and then 150, and then 200 was our dose range that we wanted uh, during the scanning. And so that was, that was how we did it. We did taper up, basically a dose escalation up. Yeah, once a day, once a day. So we had the, we, I think we advised, no, I think it was twice a day. I think we had them take 50 in the morning and then the rest in the evening. So we, we tried to do it that way. Yes, yes. Our goal was to have them be at that dose at, uh, at the time of imaging. And um, we had a couple people that couldn't quite make it to that dose, but we stopped, we, we scanned them at their maximally tolerated dose. So a couple people didn't quite make it uh, to 200. Um, okay. So this result actually, the, this, this result was actually our very first result with spectroscopy. I'm an, I'm an acupuncturist. I'm very interested in alternative medicine. And so we did a clinical trial of acupuncture in fibromyalgia, and I was interested in glutamate. And what we found was that following acupuncture, if you plot the change in, um, I'm sorry, this is the change in glutamate versus the change in experimental pain thresholds. You this is a pre minus post, but basically this is saying that when the glutamate went down with acupuncture, the pressure pain thresholds went up, so they got less, less tender. And also their clinical pain went down as well. When the glutamate goes down in the posterior insula, their clinical pain went down as well. And this is with acupuncture. It's a different, totally different intervention um, and, and not with pregabalin. We gave them, we had, there was a baseline scan and then we had four weeks of treatment where they got nine sessions, usually two, two to three times a week. And then we gave a scan within 48 hours of their last session. Sometimes it was uh, a few days later uh, than that, depending on scheduling, but, but soon after. Interestingly, acupuncture's effects last a long time, which is something I didn't talk about in my talk, but actually you can give uh, a patient a series of eight treatments over the course of uh, two to four weeks, and you can find analgesia that persists six months to a year later. So the effects last a long time. We didn't scan them uh, during, a wash, during the washout, but my, th my feeling is that the glutamate probably would stay down. I guess that would be the, the hypothesis. I'd like to do that. I'd like to see um, neurotransmitter, neuroplasticity. I mean, that's what we're getting at is plasticity of the nervous system. Um, okay, so we talked about glutamate. We talked about GABA. What about them both together? Doesn't it make sense that if you look at the excitatory neurotransmitter, you probably also look at the inhibitory neurotransmitter at the same time in the same individual to get an assessment of the activity? And so this is a study that looked at um, uh, obstructive sleep apnea, but anyway, they, they was a very nice study where they looked at GABA in the insula, and they found that the patient, patients with obstructive sleep apnea had less GABA in the insula than um, controls, and they also had higher levels of glutamate as well. So not only did they have less, uh, have more excitation, they had less inhibition as well. So it's almost like a synergistic effect. And like, imagine if we were just looking at this signal alone. If you were just looking at the glutamate alone, you might not know what's going on because the GABA might also actually be different in that person. So um, 
we're very interested in trying to understand whether the glutamate and GABA ratio is important. And our hypothesis is that actually it is. We, we believe that the concentration of glutamate and GABA in the insula is, a, is playing a role in pain. And what we want to try to get at is whether it's a cause of the pain in the insula or you know, are these peripheral factors going on. The question is, obviously, in fibromyalgia, there's this small fibroneuropathy experiments that are coming out. Um, there's, some people believe that the peripheral nervous system is really playing a role in fibromyalgia. And if it is, then it's causing this elevation to go up here. You know, it's causing these changes to go on in the neurotransmitters in the, in the brain. That's one, one hypothesis. The other hypothesis is this is the primary area that's, that's pathological. This is the area in the brain where the pathology is, and it's not being driven by, by the periphery. So if that's the case, we might be able to go to an animal experiment and try to assess that. And so uh, we did a, this is uh, done by Chris Watson. Not, um, he's affiliated with our group. Um, we tried to do a reverse translation of the spectroscopy findings. And what he did was he took rats and did a chronic constriction uh, ligation, which basically causes pain in rats. And he found that um, with the CCI, you can get this nice increase uh, in glutamate, uh, um, specifically in the insula of these, these animals. So you're getting high, higher concentrations of glutamate following a painful stimulus. Okay, so that says your, your intervention is, is causing an increase in glutamate and pain. Well, what if you try to modulate that? So here on the left, what we have here is um, what happens when you add a glutamate receptor antagonist. So this is what happens at baseline. This is their pain, okay? At baseline, this is their threshold, their pain threshold. After the chronic constriction, you get a lowering of the threshold, so they have more pain. If you do ringers, there's not much going on. But if you block the glutamate channels with DNQX and NK801, two, two glutamate channel blockers, you see a reversal of the pain threshold. You see that their thresholds go back up, which means they have less pain. Interestingly, you also see it in the contralateral leg to some extent. In the contralateral leg, you also see the same kind of effect happening with the, the constriction causing a lowering of the threshold, which is reversed by blocking the glutamate channels themselves. Okay, what about GABA? Okay, so over here, this is GABA. So what he did was basically the same thing, same kind of experiment, but then what he tried to do is he tried to increase the endogenous GABA level by adding this compound called NPA into the insula. And so what you can see is this nice uh, reduction in threshold, so greater experimental sensitivity to pain. Increasing GABA returns the threshold back up again. And, it, and also you see this in the contralateral leg. So this is suggesting that the transmitters um, are necessary. I mean, they're necessary for this change in hyper, hyperalgesia, this hyperalgesia to happen. It doesn't tell you whether it's sufficient to generate the pain. So what Chris also did was he looked at pain-free animals. He just took plain rats, no pain whatsoever, didn't do any CCI at all, and he either inhibited the reuptake of glutamate with microdialysis in the insula. And what he found was that if you increase glutamate by inhibiting its reuptake, you get a drop in the threshold, ipsilaterally as well as contralaterally suggesting that just injecting glutamate alone is sufficient 
to engender pain. Blocking GABA synthesis is the other way to do it. Blocking GABA synthesis would cause um, a decrease in GABA, right? And if you have less inhibition in the insula, you'll get more pain, and that's what you see. You see a decrease in the pain threshold. So we're almost done. This says there's basically a balance. This is obviously kind of saying that there's a balance. If you have a balance between glutamate and GABA, if they're equal concentrations, you're not going to have much of an effect. But with chronic pain, you have this imbalance. And this imbalance is you know, more glutamate in pronociceptive areas and less GABA in pronociceptive areas. And it basically is saying that the, what I would hypothesize or like conclude is that it's possible that this is explaining pain and that this neurotransmitter imbalance, not only is it necessary for the pain, because if you block the transmitters action on the receptors, you block the effect, but it's also sufficient if you inject glutamate or you change GABA in the insula, that's also sufficient to cause a change in pain threshold. All right, so we're done. Finally, the summary, insula hyperactivity seems to play a role in pain pathology, specifically in fibromyalgia. Um, glutamate is increased glutamate in the insula, decreased GABA. These levels are modulated by pharmacologic agents as well as non-pharmacologic agents, which uh, are shown to be effective in this population at reducing their pain. Suggests that there might be a personalized theory, therapy for these individuals. The individuals that had the pathology might benefit from these drugs. Um, and reverse translation with animals suggests that these effects might potentially be causal rather than a response from peripheral uh, nociceptive activity. And I'd conclude by, I'd like to thank uh, Dan Claw, who's been a mentor of mine for a while. Um, he's been very instrumental in my growth. Uh, Vitaly Napado, I've collaborated with, with, this, with the functional connectivity, and Richard Eden and Brad Forrester have helped me with uh, spectroscopy. And that's my timer. So I'm actually exactly at 50 minutes, guys. So, thank you. <laughs> Sorry, it's a small, very small audience. <laughs>